Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Vuk Jukic and this is Anablock Podcast. This show is exploration of enterprise software, technology, ideas, business, science, history, and world affairs. This podcast is for anyone that likes to learn new things about business and technology. This podcast is brought to you by Anablock. Anablock is a system integrator and Salesforce partner. Anablock's technical team helps organizations to implement, customize, and optimize their Salesforce applications. In this episode, our guests are DJ Jotti and Jim Hatcherson. DJ currently works for IBM as an associate partner managing IBM's global Salesforce assets. Previous to IBM, he held executive positions at Capgemini, Accenture, and Citibank. Jim Hatcherson is currently a principal and the chief technical architect at Capgemini Government Solutions, where he leads the Salesforce practice delivering enterprise-class solutions to U.S. federal government customers. DJ, Jim, and I talk about their book, data migration patterns and best practices, Salesforce ecosystem, and many other interesting topics. I hope you will enjoy our conversation. Uh, DJ and Jim, thank you for being on Anablock podcast. Uh, I uh, had an opportunity to you know, uh, take your book. I was recommended by our uh, mutual uh, friend, Dave Mastery. And it was, it's an amazing book. I had an opportunity actually to use it live on, on, a, on an existing project. And through conversations I had with Dave, uh, he introduced me to, to you, DJ. And then, you know, uh, you brought in Jim. So anyway, so here we are um, talking about Salesforce ecosystem, architectures, data architecture, etc. So let's start maybe just by... Uh, going uh, to kind of like the uh, day zero, if you want to really introduce yourselves and just tell us a little bit about your background and, you know, what are you currently doing? So maybe DJ, we can start with you. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So uh, my full name is Dipankar Jyoti. I go by DJ where um, in terms of my Salesforce journey, first of all, uh, before we begin, thank you so much for inviting us. Uh, I know right. that the time out of your day and also being an honor to be a part of your podcast. It's a real pleasure. Um, in terms of my uh, details, uh, somewhere around uh, two, so I started my career in 2000. A lot of it was really around uh, business transformations, strategic, uh, uh, you know, re-engineering of business processes, tools and others, very much into Six Sigma model, very non-technical. In 2009, I had the opportunity to really get my hands deep uh, into building a uh, proof of concept for a particular client that was uh, looking towards seeing uh, my business transformation roadmap into some action. And I think the love fest started for me right there with Salesforce because it was so easy to build and doing the go-to-market. And since then, I have probably dedicated uh, three to four hours each day, including more hours in the weekend to just uh, building that knowledge in Salesforce and being part of the ecosystem, including reading different books, other things. And beyond that, um, the part that I was going to say was that... Huh, just sorry? to note on that, I, I, I can actually 
tell. And, you know, that it's pretty inspiring and amazing. I think the number of certificates you have, I have noticed oh, that in your LinkedIn page. Do you want to maybe yeah. just quickly tell us yeah. how many do you have? Overall, yeah, I know there's some, some Salesforce, a lot of Salesforce, but you also have a few others. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, so I, I have 13 Salesforce certification, including the system and application architect. I've got 10 others, which include uh, AWS uh, Professional Architect, uh, Google Cloud Professional Architect, uh, Azure Solutions Architect. Uh, I also am a certified blockchain expert and uh, PMP and uh, Six, uh, Six Sigma was always there as a black belt. So yeah, those kind of comprise of the 10 additional non-sales for certification, but altogether 23 certifications. Well, that's amazing. So uh, a lot of interesting sort of um, fields from blockchain to, to obviously Salesforce. So out of all of those, which one was the most difficult? Salesforce admin. Really? <laughs> yeah. Believe it or not, because, because you know, like I, I wasn't the testing kind of guy, right? I mean, so, uh -huh. you know, uh, Six Sigma Black Belt was very natural because it was sponsored by a company and I got the Six Sigma. But when I was uh, building all of these hands-on in Salesforce, what one of the challenges I saw was that when I was planning to take the test, it was like one evening. I just said, oh, I've been building Salesforce for the last two days. I can pass this exam, you know? Mm. Um, with no idea of um, what kind of questions come up and everything. I showed up in the exam. Uh, I think I, they don't tell you how many percentage you passed or whatnot. I was very confident, but I was disappointed to see the fail in there. Um, and then I think I, it took me one more try. And then I was really kind of up and nerve, up nerve, where I took it on to me to prepare for these certifications and give these exams in a more, more uh, descriptive manner. And that's where, like, I think it led to um, a series of additional certifications. Excellent, excellent. Uh, so maybe we can go to you, Jim, for a little bit. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit, I guess, what are you doing today? And a little bit about your uh, background, how you got into Salesforce. No, oh, you bet. Thank you. And, and again, thank you very much for having us on your podcast. We're definitely honored to be here. Um, and thrilled to have the opportunity to really participate with the, the Salesforce ecosystem. Uh, I'm currently the chief technology officer um, for, or architect for Capgemini Government Solutions. Um, in that role, I really focus in on really all the capabilities that we deliver from a technical perspective. Um, I started at Capgemini as the Salesforce practice lead and really built that, that entity over the last six years um, from you know zero sales all the way through being you know a leader uh, in the government market space for the um, uh, Salesforce environment. Um, I've been in the Salesforce ecosystem now for a long time. In fact, I remember uh, my first Dreamforce were was in a hotel. Uh, we walked out of the room and we were in a, a just a mob of people kind of moving from room to room. Um, you know, so I've been there for a long time and, and have really seen the product go from uh, its infancy as a CRM product. Um, I saw the power that it had and I really jumped in and started learning the product. I've been a user of the product. I've been a pr procurement uh, a resource for the product, buying the product for, for companies. And then I've also implemented it from an end user perspective in the last um, probably eight years I've been in the systems integration side. Um, I'm a huge proponent of the ecosystem um, from the perspective of 
this is one of the only products in the market that is really um, driven um, by the people who use the product and deliver and implement the products. Most companies tend to want you to you know, go pay for their certifications and do their things, and they've really managed the whole process. With Salesforce, it's really the systems integrators, the users themselves, um, the admins, the developers, the architects who really make up that ecosystem. The product has grown a lot. They've, they've definitely gone from you know, you know, infancy when I got there to, to being a, a major, major force in the marketplace. But Salesforce has just been a, a great product for me personally as a, as a contributor to the market, but also you know, it, it, it supports a, a, a part of the environment that uh, uh, we've never seen before. So that's a little bit about my background and uh, I Excellent. want to be part and, of it. And DJ, going back to you now on, you're currently, if you want to maybe tell us a little bit more about your current role, you're actually right now currently with IBM, is that true? Yeah, correct. And I'll keep this short. Uh, my journey has been, um, you know, working with Accenture before, joined Capgemini. That's where I met Jim. And now with IBM as an associate partner managing the Salesforce Global Assets. Okay. Uh, so you have been also with the, the Salesforce ecosystem for many years, and I'm sure you have seen the transformation and evolution of the product itself and the whole technology stack. Uh uh, maybe if we can sort of switch a little bit towards uh, or to discuss a little bit more um, your book. So you both are co-authors, unless mm -hmm. I'm mistaken, yeah. of uh, the book about Salesforce architecture. Maybe What is the title of the book? Yeah. Uh, so the title of the book is uh, Salesforce Architects Handbook. And uh, uh, at a very high level, uh, uh, it, it's a culmination of mine and Jim's journey in the Salesforce ecosystem of everything we captured in an organized systematic manner that uh, enables you to uh, apply it directly into a client project, like the one you said, you know, but it's called Salesforce Architects Handbook. Okay, great. And what was your motivation to write the book? Yeah. Uh, I think, uh, you know, and I can I can go with this and then I can also have Jim probably say why he wanted to partner with me. Uh, initially, uh, you know, as part of the journey of getting all these certifications, uh, integration certification, identity and access management, there was a lot of work that went into, but there is piecemeal information out there. So whoever wants to study for this exam, they have to not only go into one book, but like several websites and several YouTube videos and uh, endless hours to even understand what they are really looking at. My book was intended to really do a, a entire deep dive into what does really integration mean at the minimum level and then get into the details of what are the integrations possible within Salesforce and how do you choose? And by the way, that's something that Jim can speak more to because he had added more value there. Um, but these are the kind of... Uh, ideas that I had, and I felt like it was a social pain across the ecosystem for everybody facing these certifications. Um, although it is not intended only for certification, it is intended for practical purposes because from our projects, I've, uh, me and Jim both have added a lot of our personal details, uh, anonymizing any client information or any proprietary details, but we have tried to put in as much as we can so that people are aware 
of what kind of gotchas and issues they can have within Salesforce implementations. Jim? Yeah, and I would, I would really add, TJ and I actually had a chance to work with each other kind of virtually from a Capgemini perspective when we actually met up at a CTA 601 session, uh, kind of a multi-day session where we're kind of, you know, do we even want to do the CTA exam? Um, and, you know, in that, in that room, we really got to know kind of our, each other's kind of approach and how we were looking at it and how we were thinking about it. You know, so you know, when I go back and even look at just the release notes that Salesforce does, we're looking at, you know, thousands and thousands of pages and, you know, hundreds of thousands of places that you have to go to really find information. So part of the conversation that we were having during the 601 was, you know, how do we put this all together and make the presentation, of course, to the CTA board? And that really led to a lot of conversations. And DJ made the comment, he says, yeah, I've been working on this project and, you know, and I'm, I'm writing this book. And I'm like, wow, that's really cool. And he invites me, he says, hey, would you like to be kind of a technical reader for me? And I'm like, man, that would be great. But man, I'd love to, I'd love to help you. You know, so a couple of days later, he calls me up and says, hey, Jim, how would you like to co-author with me? So, you know, you know, certainly DJ did the lion's share of, you know, what does it take to publish the book, how to get it, you know, approved and the publisher getting that. So he did a boatload of work to really get that book a, to become a reality. Um, but he brought me in at a time where I think he was really formulating how can we best take these thousands of release notes and different websites and pull it together. And I think in the title, when we look at it, it's Salesforce Architect, but it really is an end-to-end -end guide. We try to go through all seven of the domains and really provide you with the information that you need when you're on the job. So one of the things that we like about this book is it's not just for a CTA trying to pass the board. That's not really what it's for. It's for a business manager who wants to know what it is, uh, an IT architect who's been doing things maybe in AWS or somewhere else to know what Salesforce can do. It's for the, you know, the app developers. It's for the enterprise architects who are trying to figure out how do they want to do things. You can take this book, and I think you said at the beginning of the show, you've actually used it after the first week. You can actually use it with a client. And we wanted exactly. to be able to provide a story and a message that showed all the different architectures not giving you every single thing you can do, but putting it together in one very comprehensive package. And that's really, you know, for me, that was what, what really drove me to want to be part of this. And you know, certainly, you know, living through, you know, 2020 and everything that's happened in 2020, it allowed us to really have an opportunity to focus that pent up energy in something that we really felt was very, very valuable for the ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, it's a great book. I was introduced to it six days ago, and I'm already applying it on a on a project with a, in a large enterprise client doing like massive data migration job, data integration, etc. Uh, so this is great. I mean, our sort of ecosystem definitely needs books like this, and there's very few of them. And you know, I. Kind yeah, of I mean, tracking Mark this. and I have gotten yeah. notes yeah. that said, hey, I bought this book for every one of my architects and developers so that they have something that they can exactly. use day to day. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Now, this is awesome. This brings actually that practical experience and technical knowledge right to you. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know, to a certain extent, like Salesforce has a lot of internal tools like the Trailhead, et cetera, a lot of these developer guides, but 
I'm wondering if that, to a certain extent, maybe discouraged some other folks like you to publish more material uh, like this, uh, because it's it's very very rare <laughs> to a certain extent. Especially before, I remember for a number of years, I think Dan Appleman was the only person who had some kind of a <laughs> more technical book, you know, like more for developers and architects. Uh, uh, excellent. Uh, so in in the book itself, you're you're covering uh, a lot of really cool topics, you know, everything from data architecture, uh, security ar architecture, integration architecture, et cetera. Um, is, is there anything maybe that you would want to highlight to the audience uh, on this podcast? Obviously, there's a lot of content, you know, it's, it's I don't know how many pages, but, but something on, on a high level that we maybe can discuss for in, in this show. Jim, you want me to take the first uh, step? Yeah, sure. So when we look at the book, if you think about it, the first two chapters are really designed to tell you, you know, what is, you know, what is Salesforce about and how is it done? So chapter one really kind of goes, goes in a fairly, you know, quick, deep storytelling approach, but it tells you what this tool can do. Chapter two really kind of focuses in on, you know, how do you put together your thoughts from an, from an, uh, architectural design. And then the rest of the chapter really breaks down each one of those seven domains. So we did that in a way and, and very purposefully, you know, DJ's original kind of outline for this really was to, to get the, get that, um, uh, individual who's trying to understand what's going on in this environment, the, the kind of that big picture. So, you know, for me, the, the book really, is not a replacement for anything that you'd get out of Trailhead or any of the documentation you get from Salesforce or even any of the books that are out there that have been published. It's really an add-on. It's an addition to the arsenal that they bring together. And it allows you to really kind of go, okay, I'm trying to find something. You can find it quickly in our guide in the, in the, in the handbook. And then from there, we, you know, it pushes you off into, okay, I need to go read, um, you know, the, the data architecture structure to be able to know exactly how to do the things that we talked about in the book. Yeah. Um, and it, the whole point in, in our motivation really has been, how can we um, provide a very high level guide for people to be able to get the information quickly, enough detail and enough information for architects that are already in the field or somebody that already knows it to remind themselves or to, go a little step deeper, um, and at the same time, also point them to the resources that they can go to. Yeah. DJ? I think uh, one of the ways I have uh, uh, explained, like, and, and this has been the initial outline also, and I think Jim alluded to it, uh, the first chapter, for example, uh, is where we are talking about why Salesforce, and not just that, we're talking about if it wasn't Salesforce at all, what would that world look like with like IS, PaaS, SaaS services and what does that even mean? But more importantly, then we jump into an area where we take an example of a user experience where they're logging into their web browser, logging into Salesforce, and all they want to do is update their uh, account phone number. And what happens in the middle between that scenario from the user clicking on their browser to access Salesforce to Salesforce updating the data, Salesforce showcasing all of this stuff and Salesforce providing all the capabilities. We're talking about runtime engines, we're talking about, so very quickly, we start from a very brief intro of what is the world without Salesforce into, here is a scenario of what exactly is happening inside of Salesforce. Now, 
that detail that is in chapter one is not uh, uh, explicitly published anywhere. Some of that has been us kind of going under the hood. Also, we have had the uh, luxury of meeting with a lot of Salesforce product developers and others that we've directly got inputs from and we enhanced our knowledge on it. Now that second chapter is more of a, uh, a chapter that holds on all of the other chapters together, which is I have noticed in many of my books that I've read, like in AWS or Google Cloud, they tell you directly, oh, this is storage. This is, uh, you know, uh, EC2 or whatnot. But what does this do to me? And how do I organize this? And how do I create that architecture? So the second chapter is really talking about, hey, I'm going to give you a bunch of information, but what are you going to do with it? And how are you going to put that into a document? So tomorrow when you want to apply this, uh, like a system landscape is an example. It has the attributes from integration chapter. It has an attribute from data chapter. It has an attribute from identity and access management chapter. But like once you read that, you can go back and build a system landscape very confidently and you also have the templates for it. And that was like really the layout for how I uh, was presenting, uh, I at least initially was thinking about the book and then with Jim joining in, it even added more color uh, with that outline. Excellent. Uh, so I, to someone that's coming as a architect or developer from um, sort of different tech stacks like from, from SQL mm -hmm. Server, maybe MongoDB background. Um, how would you, on a, I guess, high level, define or explain the Salesforce data model? Yeah, no, great question. Uh, I think uh, where we go into this is only in the chapter one, we show what is the differences between, let's say like an uh, infrastructure as a service versus a, uh, you know, SaaS as a service. But I think that, uh, divide between uh, a Salesforce object model and a MongoDB relational database uh, kind of a modeling, it's two different things, right? Because when it comes to Salesforce, we are going with the MVC approach and the, the, the application as well as the code layer, as well as the data layer are very well closely integrated, which you may have to set up separately in um, infrastructure as a service or a, another platform as a service. In Salesforce, you get it out of the box and we take it for granted how quickly it is to spin up a UI as soon as you create an object, which is uh, almost uh, hard to think of. So we don't try to spend a lot of time in differentiating between Salesforce and other uh, uh, technologies because we felt like it would not go too far. But I think we definitely deep dive into uh, for somebody who's non-Salesforce technical to understand and then go with it and then tie in some areas where they can see that to do what they are suggesting over here with Salesforce object model, uh, like creating an object or records and whatnot, I would have to do this many different areas of access policies, group policies, all of these kind of stuff in another infrastructure. So it's a little bit more to the imagination, but really deep diving into, let me just talk to you about Salesforce. That's how we are up in the Salesforce chapters. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, you, you raised a good question about kind of that data model and how would you explain it. In chapter four, we spend a little bit of time, you know, a lot of time really digging into exactly how Salesforce does the data model and how you do it. But the very first couple of pages, we really talk about, you know, Salesforce looks at, you know, the data model um, through 
not just the technical aspect of how do you do this, but they actually take it and bring it up into the more abstract. And it's really, and, and, I, and I laid it out really, if you look at it, um, you know, and this is old thinking. I mean, this is some old stuff coming out. Ascroft knowledge uh, con uh, continuum has been around for a long time. And if you think about, you know, what has happened in the technology world, looking at information from the data all the way through how you use it as information, what knowledge you gain from it, and then how do you execute wisdom-based decisions? If you think about Salesforce, Salesforce is looking at data structure, not just from the bits and the bytes, but how are you actually gonna do it? And if you look at their product um, process, going from the original products you know, back you know, eight, you know, 20 years ago, all the way through you know, the new stuff with the acquisition of, you know, of the um, uh, Tableau, they're really looking at data, information, knowledge, and quite frankly, how do you gain wisdom from it? So that's in our book. Part of our process though, is really how do you take it from there and what does Salesforce do to allow you to get there? So, um, it's not just the bits and the bytes. It's also what does it mean to use that data and how do you use it as an architect in the business? If you don't know that, you're going to miss the point and you're going to try to build Salesforce like an Oracle database and you're going to and you're not going to do it correctly. That's a great, great uh, point. And, and to kind of touch on that a little bit more is um, I'm going to actually use one of your questions that are one of the headings in that same chapter. And, and the, the question is, why is data architecture important? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, the, you know, one other thing that I think we addressed this in the chapter one, we say that uh, we believe in the entire architecture world, the magic of Salesforce happens with the metadata-driven uh, architecture where uh, there is multi-tenancy and so forth. And really that polymorphism that they have in terms of uh, delivering the, uh, the, the solution to multiple clients using the same set of um, infrastructure and code with the right level of security. In an AWS or an Azure world, you're spinning off instances in a unit-tenant world. You know, you're scaling a unit-tenant world but you're not scaling a multi-tenant world with disparate customers. You might be doing it separately, by the way. There are different products out there that sit on AWS and they do that. But so eloquently, when they, the metadata-driven architecture takes into control, the integration API-driven framework, where uh, API is not only used for external integrations all throughout, but the components within uh, Salesforce are all integrated with API-driven uh, architecture, right? The second one is data model. The third is, and again, in the data model, we've referred to some of that where we uh, normalize a lot of the data, the Salesforce normalizes a lot of data in like pivot tables. So we have kind of even elaborated on that as to how they're doing this metadata magic. Yeah. But yeah, but I just wanted to kind of add that, that those details are also in there. Yeah, that's, that's actually a great, great point. Um, I wanted to, you know, kind of my goal with this podcast is really to educate the, I guess that you can say, you know, mm -hmm. more technical staff that are part of the Salesforce ecosystem. Um, one of the things is that a lot of developers, admins, they are really more in the Salesforce world, as you know, they're most of the time like full stack developers mm -hmm. uh, because they have to work from the data in some scenarios from loading data to actually, you know, building lightning web components and, and everything in between. 
Um, and you guys really took a very, um, I, I can say maybe like more of a formal approach to say, okay, you know, this is how you're supposed to, this is what the data architecture looks like. And that's, that's what we're kind of discussing right now. But I just want to ask you something a little bit more, I guess, structured from that perspective as one thing is like, what is data modeling? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I'll, I'll start and I'll pass it over to you. I mean, from, from, from the Salesforce ecosystem world, the data modeling is really around starting off with understanding what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So um, it's really important in the data modeling section. It's one of the things that you have to do um, as, a, as an admin, as an architect, as a CTA. It's, all, it's a base part of everything we do. So understanding that the data modeling structure really is understanding what the overall business outcome that you're looking for, and then building the model in a way that you're able to support that structure from an end to end or that business requirement from an end to end perspective. So the data model, um, and what's nice about Salesforce is they give you a standard data model. And those core hero, whatever you want to call them, whatever your name is for those, those objects of the account, contact, opportunity, et cetera, those core objects really set the stage for the pre-work and the packaging that Salesforce gives you. Then from there, the data modeling is really important that you understand not only just what is the next object that I'm going to do, but how are you going to interact with that object? Is that going to be a one-to-many? Is it going to be many-to-many? -many? Is it going to be, uh, is it going to parent, um, uh, you know, child relationship or master detail? Is it a lookup? All of those have impact and context to the delivery. So data modeling is the ability to think about what is it that I'm trying to accomplish? create the object structure or the data structure that's going to allow you to do that, but then understanding what the impact is. So a lot of our discussion, a lot of the things that we talk about are the implications of each of these decisions. So you'll see a lot, we do a lot of tables, we do a lot of you know, diagrams that kind of show, but the reason for that is we want you to understand what are the implications, what are some of the best practices, what are some of the considerations that you need to make when you decide, I'm gonna do a lookup, I'm gonna do a, a master detail. I'm going to, you know, because down the road, if you haven't thought about the data model as it relates to the security protocols, then it's not gonna work. So again, I'll, I'll pass it over to DJ to kind of add in you know, his thoughts on data modeling, but to me, it's a bigger picture. No, I think, I think uh, you summarized it really well. I mean, I think the only thing I, I would emphasize more on actually, which also you indicated is that it's really about the magic of the standard objects, right? I mean, uh, in, in typical, when I work on any AWS projects, like I'm starting off from scratch, creating every table, creating the relational uh, relationships between the tables and also identifying all the scaling aspects of things and so forth. Whereas in this one, my considerations are more around, here are the standard objects, uh, beyond that also, the standard objects give you some special relationships, wherein like, for example, a contact can be an orphan as well as not an orphan, but it acts like a, a parent child. <laughs> Whereas if you try to do that with like a custom object, you're going to struggle. It's, it, it's very explicit, like, hey, is it, is it a lookup or is it parent child? Now, beyond that also, I think the area that I would definitely also emphasize is in Salesforce, Data modeling has a lot of implications on the performance of Salesforce, including large data volumes. 
which we kind of try to address quite a bit in here is that there are governor limits due to the multi-tenancy where you have to be aware of how many records are getting in and how would you isolate them from, uh, how would you do archiving? How would you do skinny tables? How would you do any of that? And then um, not just mitigating it, but also ensuring that uh, large amounts of data that is not utilized by Salesforce, uh, how that can be kept outside of Salesforce and virtualized within Salesforce. So it is a little bit of a holistic approach to data modeling rather than uh, you know some other uh, infrastructure because you have to be very cautious of um, you know how much data you're bringing into Salesforce and keeping into Salesforce and using within Salesforce. Got it. Um, so. Well, I guess we you cover uh, in, in in your book uh, quite a few, and hopefully all the listeners uh, after this episode go and get the book, and I strongly uh, recommend it. But you cover different data modeling techniques, etc. Uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit how does data normalization work in Salesforce? Yep. Jeb, you want me to take, take that first, or yeah, go ahead and take that one. Yeah. So when I think from a data normalization perspective, right? I mean, a lot of times I, so I'll actually even take a much uh, a step back. My approach to data model is as such, because it's an object oriented uh, data modeling concept. Uh, whenever I look at a requirement, I look for nouns. Anything that is a noun in my head is a normalized aspect of that data. And what I would do is basically I would create an object around it. Typically, like I wouldn't break down the object much because there is implications to uh, sharing requirements, access requirements, OWDs, and all of those pieces. But I would, in my initial build, keep the object model very simple, uh, no matter how complex the business is, and then expand on that and break them into junction objects as well as uh, additional smaller objects as needed to isolate the data uh, depending on how I'm using it in, in context of the application. But really, it starts with like uh, keeping each aspect of data that comes into the requirement where you're using it for create, re create, read, update, or delete through a UI of Salesforce, or that if or presenting within Salesforce. I think that object needs to be in there, uh, and you know you can present it now. There is also the data modeling aspect where there are so there are system, data coming from other systems. For those ones, I always, always recommend that, you know, you start doing like external objects, data virtualization through Canvas and all of these other aspects. So, you know, that's my technique. Um, it is how I'm also kind of get into the normalization of data as I plan it out, but it is not a one-step guide to, oh, this is the object model and this will exist for the rest of the project. It has never happened in my career. You know, it has always changed and I've always had to add objects, you know, I try not to remove objects because that is a lot of hassle. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always towards like creating less objects and building more objects future. Got it. One thing that I'd, I'd like to raise on this one as well, and I, I think you started to hit on it, is you know normalization is really taking and taking the data and breaking it into environments where you're going to be using that data one time. If you make a change in a normalized database, it's going to go all the way through the data structure. Whereas if you denormalize, you're basically splitting that up and data gets replicated. So it's so in a denormalized database, you sometimes have to really pay attention to keeping everything synchronized or up to date. 
there's two major factors that I think people really sometimes overlook when they make the decision around normalize or denormalize. And those two factors are number one, what is the analytic requirement? So in other words, are you, how are you going to report? And sometimes you need to denormalize because you need your reports to be very fast and you need a lot of information to be consumed quickly. The second aspect of it is what's the UI capability? In other words, what's the impact of the user experience? And sometimes denormalization becomes very cluttered and it's not very pretty when people look at it on the screen. There's just too much data. So you have to balance between the two and there's never one right answer. There's an optimization of that answer. So I always look at my choice of normalize or denormalize with two factors. How fast do I need to report and how clean do I need the screen? And I balance the structure with that. The cool thing about Salesforce is I can present subsets of the actual table. I can show a page layout that's completely different than the data model underneath it. So I can sometimes have the best of both worlds, but you still run into that synchronization problem. So if you go too far to the denormalization or flat file where everybody has everything, then it gets a little bit more difficult to manage. But if you really think about your data, data analysis and your user experience, if you keep those two in mind, the decision on which way to go helps you. In the book, we actually give you two user stories that show you examples of normalizing and denormalizing and the value, you know, the decision point that we, that we looked at. Both are right, um, but it really depends on the situation that you're at. Okay. And uh, one more thing that, that was kind of interesting when I was going through your book, and maybe you can share it a little bit more um, with, um, with the listeners, is uh, when we're talking about also designing a data model, uh, can you just tell, talk a little bit more about like what are different considerations for supporting programmatic versus uh, declarative business logic? Go ahead and jump in, DJ, on that one. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, um, you know, uh, that's a loaded question. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. and, we're, and we're slightly in different camps on this. It's interesting as we get yeah, yeah. into this conversation. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, when, I, when I think about this, um, I, I've, in my book, I think, uh, you know, I've, uh, we've kind of talked about uh, creating some uh, dominant characteristics of the data, meaning that, well, one, um, who's adding the data in? Is it a consumer of data? Is it a manager of data? Is it a uh, information um, provider of data, you know, and so forth, which is talking about how the data gets in. But however, uh, you know, when we are thinking about um, declarative versus programmatic, what we've identified over there is once you can categorize each requirement into one of three categories, we've given a choice among 40 different selections, which include declarative and programmatic uh, features, uh, which one apply to which? A good example would be like, for example, uh, LWC uh, meets all the three requirements, which is um, of your data log, data context, uh, interface context, as well as uh, your, um, this is of course my book, but we don't remember. But <laughs> but the third, third context, and essentially what we're we're referring to is that we've made it simple enough when you choose one of these categories, 
And you can say this requirement really curtails to that category. And these are the different features that we can have declarative versus programmatic. When it comes to programmatic, the other challenge that we have is there are there is a technical debt to it. Whereas in declarative, the technical debt is taken care of by Salesforce, not you. Yep. Um, and I feel like and the only technical debt you can I can imagine in the declarative side, of course, there is some consideration, but it would be around process builder and uh, validation rules and the flows. But in programmatic, everything can be a technical debt. Uh, you know, visual force pages to LWCs to aura components to anything. And then there is that whole idea of uh, decoupling versus being cohesive versus how do you make it a reusable component and how do you have that part of that object itself versus make it more global action. Those are some of the considerations we have in, uh, indicated. It's not so much just related to data. That's the reason why it was a loaded question because I feel like there are implications from whether you're integrating this data. Is this data coming from outside? Is this data getting um, residing in Salesforce? Is it going to be in transit? All of these considerations come into play, right? When you choose that feature. Got it. Yeah, and, and, and it's interesting because he, he touched on one of the areas, one of the hot buttons areas. So so when you think about when you think about the the product Salesforce, it's the low code, no code solution. And, and that and that's very true. And and we're seeing, especially in 2021, with the with the summer release coming out, so many things that used to only be doable with the programmatic aspect can now be done with a, a very elegant um, lightning flow approach. The inverse or the converse of all of these decisions are really around the, the benefits that you get, as he talked about in terms of the um, technical debt, um, with the ease and the speed in which you can do things from a lightning flow perspective, you're also finding that you're sometimes causing your system performance to be impacted. So you really have to think about what is the benefit of, of no technical debt or reduced technical debt and having that programmatic uh, management compared to the ease and the ability for somebody non-programmatic to do it? So it's kind of that balance. And it's a really tough decision to make, especially as you get into larger enterprises. So when you start getting into the four, five, six, 7,000 user, 30,000 user environments with many different applications, you're really gonna be forced into understanding what the performance impact is by going through a lightning flow. Now, every release of Salesforce, they improve the process, they streamline, they, you know, they, they are really spending a lot of time and energy. Uh, and, and research and development dollars to keep that uh, structure open. But at the same time, so is that programmatic approach, the, the, the practices and the approaches and the frameworks that are out there are getting much more elegant. So that what I really like is that Salesforce is not only giving you the no code approach, but they're allowing that no code approach to use um, a programmatic approach as part of the solution. So again, we keep coming back to it. There's usually yep. more than one variable that you have to look at before you can make the decision which way to go. Excellent. Um, and we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but can you just share with us or maybe explain uh, what are skinny tables? And you know, when should we be using them? Yep. Yeah, interesting, go, go ahead. No, but I think uh, it really comes down to that large data volumes, right? I mean, uh, when there are uh, several read operations within Salesforce and in many other technologies, this is where the distinction happens is that 
you do get the option to um, kind of virtualize or abstract a particular set of data for read operations. In Salesforce, uh, there's no a clickable function. You have to uh, you know, open up a support ticket with Salesforce to create a skinny table, but this would be essentially when uh, your performance is getting degraded, you're looking through your, uh, you know, uh, the, your stack performance, and then you realize that the consistent read is heavy on maybe a, one object or a mix of two, three objects that are connected together. What you could do is essentially get a, a skinny table created, which is nothing but another custom object as, as we speak, but is an abstraction of the objects on which you build that. The good, new, the good part about this compared to a custom object is the idea that uh, you don't have to really update data in the skinny table. It does just give you that reference based on the underlying data updates made into the relevant uh, custom objects. Yeah, and, and I look at it, really skinny tables are very valuable when you do have a normalized environment but you have a query that's basically either um, being impacted by the data volume that's there or it's being impacted by the complexity of your, your data model. You can request a, a skinny table as a Salesforce um, uh, provided solution where you can actually ask and, and they'll do a custom join for you to denormalize your data for a given report or a given query that you're gonna be running. So it really is a way to solve some of that large data volume uh, impact that you're going to run into when you start getting into millions of records. It's a really good solution. But you still need to go back and take a look at, you know, are there other ways to do it? So setting up divisions, setting up your, your, your query plan and understanding what the, um, that process is, understanding how Salesforce indexes and even asking the indexes. And then lastly, looking at your statistics um, and understanding what these queries are looking like. Um, you've got to look at it all. Skinny table is a, is, a, is a quick answer, but sometimes it's a short-lived answer too. So you've really got to look at what's causing your large data volume impact. Um, and um, for your CTAs that are going after that, that isn't the answer. You can't always just say it's a skinny table. Um, you've got to be able to back yourself up and understand why that was the best answer. Thank you for the explanation. One thing that I have noticed over the years, I'm sure everyone else has too, and it doesn't really matter for, uh, the size of the organization, but companies are cons uh, consistently struggling with duplicate management, especially regardless if it's like a you know, 100 user uh, Salesforce org or you know, 10,000, where it actually gets a little bit more complex because you have enterprise data warehouse in play and maybe some other platforms like MDM platforms, et cetera. Uh, uh, both of you have a very rich and extensive career. What are some of the better, I guess, approaches or strategies have you seen or maybe even implemented over your professional career uh, related to duplicate management? Yeah, but I kind of live this one all the time and I know DJ hits this a lot. So, so I'll, I'll jump in and then I'll pass it off to, to DJ as well. So as I look at duplicate management, the first thing I have to do is I have to really always ask my client um, or the company or the business user, depending on your role, you know, what is it that you're really trying to solve? So, you know, duplicates come in 
into, in, into organizations for all kinds of reasons. It could be leads being converted. It could be, you know, um, you know, accounts and contacts that are coming in. It could be that you know, you've got users who are coming in from multiple different touch points. That duplication process is going to happen. I think Salesforce has done a really good job over the last couple of releases to really enhance and improve the duplicate management processes that you have for data coming into an org. So you can set it up um, uh, very quickly. You can look at you know, duplications in a way that um, uh, can be managed fairly well, um, but you're still limited to what is the thing that you're doing. So there's a core question that, you're, that you really have to understand is, is the duplicate contact the problem or is it that you just don't know who's asking the question? And, and I'll give you a live kind of example and I live this all the time. Uh, you asked me when we first came in, hey, are you Andy Hutcherson or are you Jim Hutcherson? If I go into a computer system and I log in Andy and I log in Jim, it's never gonna find me as a duplicate. It's gonna take yep. that in there and it's gonna process it me. And the business problem that you're trying to solve doesn't go away because you put in this duplicate management system. You really have to come up with a mechanism where you're actually thinking about what is it that I'm trying to do? Typically duplicate management is making sure I know the identity of the person that I'm dealing with. And that I'm delivering a service, providing a product, doing some manipulation with that knowledge in place. And almost every client that I'm working with today, it's really knowing who is the person behind it. Even if they have two different names, two different companies, two different spellings, it's really the same thing. And I'm sure DJ, you probably live with this all the time. You've got, you know, Depenka, you got DJ, you've got a lot of stuff and those two don't make connections. So yeah. I'll pass it yeah. on. But to me, that duplicate side of things, it's really, you got to understand what the business requirement is and then tackle deduplication, not just deduplication for the sake of deduplication. I mean, I think I think you you kind of indicated this, but like I think for me, it's uh, and this this is something that I'm facing on a daily basis. As Jim said, it's also about the process, right? Data in, data out. Now, duplicate management in Salesforce is much related around account contact leads and so forth. But then there are also these issues around like where uh, duplicate cases, right? Um, how do you even detect that? Because that's so qualitative. Like there's no quantitative measure. Uh, at least with duplicate management or account contact leads, you also have the fuzzy logic where you can, beyond the name, have like four other uh, details that it can match to, an exact match or fuzzy match and whatnot and all that. But more importantly than that, I think from a data integrity perspective, I also say, how do you really build your data model and your custom fields? Oftentimes, when I know that there are certain sensitive data fields that does not need to be, that needs to be unique. Salesforce does provide you the option to choose if it should be unique or not. And although I'm always against it, there's certain times when duplicate management is an issue where I uh, refocus on creating that, uh, enforcing that uh, field in the, uh, that this should be either an, ex, uh, you know, like non-duplicate required. I focus a lot on validation rule. And then of course there's duplicate management, but here's the bigger kicker. I do think that when there is integration involved, none of these really work as efficiently because if you enforce so much tight restrictions around validation rules and you know requiring like that it be unique and so forth, integration could fail. This is where I think uh, having some kind of an MDM technology is very helpful. 
sometimes uh, if the client is not ready for an MDM, oftentimes we create a proxy data platform that essentially helps us either virtualize the data or orchestrate the data and mediate the data in the right way. This is where middleware comes in huge play. Not that it will query Salesforce, but it will at least kind of ensure that uh, you know, a message is not submitted twice or multiple times through retry and creating duplicate data, right? Excellent. Uh, one thing that is, or especially over the last few years with um, the world in general moving fast, expecting information quickly, uh, there was a major shift that's been going on for a while now, but I think exponentially grew over the last few years is towards event-driven architecture. Um, what are your maybe thoughts when it comes specifically like, for example, Apache Kafka or, or those types of technologies? Salesforce is also tackling that with uh, platform events. Um, I guess, what are your thoughts? Um, how well is Salesforce moving in this direction and any experiences you might have had? Yeah. Yeah, I can take that, Jim, and then I can pass it on to you. So in, 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 I, I, I work with that a lot. As you know, IBM, is a, a, IBM also owns Red Hat, which is our infrastructure services and so forth. And, um, you know, we, in integrating um, Salesforce with any of our non-Salesforce technologies, uh, we typically use Kafka events and also a mix of platform events. Where it comes down to is that I feel like uh, Kafka events is much more mature. Uh, the retry policies, as well as the retention policies, as well as the message size, message volumes are higher in uh, Kafka events uh, and the queuing capabilities and, and, you know, all of that, right? Whereas in platform events, you it's really like you're doing a, a, a SQL query, pulling all the data, putting it into platform events, making that available through event bus and doing a push topic free, uh, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when, it, when it is outgoing, it's, it's okay because you're publishing it to a committee or any other event bus and you're making that accessible to others. But when you're pulling it in um, from Kafka events into Salesforce, you almost have to push it into a platform events. And then also not just that, sometimes you even have to orchestrate that through a flow or a trigger or a class, a mainly flow or a trigger, not even a class really, because if it's going to be close to near real time. And I feel like that is additional step that should not be as hard to integrate with Kafka events. You should be just able to listen to some topics. You should be able to push topics into Kafka events rather than Comet D or any other places. And then when it comes back, you should be able to have an up update into Salesforce. But I can see why Salesforce might have a hesitation because it has governor limits, not so much around platform events and others, but in general with their API structure where they might have the issues. But I think it needs to mature more. I don't think... Um, it is as mature to integrate using Kafka events with Salesforce as I would like to see, you know? Yeah, I, I would agree, TJ. I, I think that the maturity level of uh, platform event is still a little bit behind from an industry perspective where it needs to be for truly having that, that um, event um, process. Yep. I've found that even as you look at it and you go through the trailheads and then you even go through the kind of, you know, trying to implement, there's always kind of a, there's a middle step that you have to take. So one of the things that, that I've found has been successful, regardless of what tool you're doing, that's where kind of having that ESB process, really orchestrating and managing the data integration within your enterprise is going to help a lot. Uh, 
So some of the things that you were talking about, DJ, about what you have to do if you're trying to go from, you know, an event system into Salesforce and then, you know, what it does to, you almost have to turn it into a platform event. Yeah. You kind of do. Um, yeah. You know, it, you really just have to do that. So what I, my recommendations are for organizations that are really taking advantage of this high velocity um, events that are taking place. Um, is absolutely, you know, you've got to go to the ESP. You've got to go to a MuleSoft type of environment where you're really paying attention to that orchestration. And then Salesforce events become very powerful at that point because then you've got that, that ex external system kind of managing that, um, that traffic that's going on. And again, you're also able to publish that so that it's not just, it's not Salesforce. It could be Appium, ServiceNow, Pega, and Salesforce all get the event. They do their updates based off of what they need, and it's a it, it's a single transaction that's taking place. Um, and that's really where the power comes into play um, for that environment. You know, from my experience. But I agree with. I mean, DJ, you're dead on. And, 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 you know, uh, to add to one of the things that Jim said, uh, ESP, right? Once you bring an ESP between Salesforce and Kafka events. I often, like in many of my implementations, I often uh, wonder, outgoing fine, ESP took the data from Salesforce, published a topic in Kafka events, somebody consumes it, doesn't consume it, whatever they want to do. When it's coming back, Salesforce is picking up, uh, sorry, the ESP, let's say like it's MuleSoft, is picking up all of these details. Now it has to update uh, you know, a platform event that will then update an object from an inbound perspective, uh, governor limits are lax anyways compared to outbound in Salesforce. Sometimes I even wonder like, why wouldn't I just use the MuleSoft to listen to Kafka events and just update through a REST API or a SOAP API directly into Salesforce <laughs> rather yeah. than like do all of these platform events, Kafka events for an inbound uh, ingress kind of an integration. Uh, so that's another piece that if you have an ESB, the, the, the maturity of uh, uh, using Kafka with Salesforce increases. However, Salesforce in itself to integrate with Kafka, I think needs a little bit more work to do, you know? Yeah, agree. Excellent. Well, DJ and Jim, thank you. This was awesome. Um, I had a chance to, to ask my questions and learn quite a bit. Uh, again, thanks for being on the show and uh, I, we will in the notes of the podcast list the uh, link to the book itself. So for anyone listening, you can easily pick up the book. Uh, thanks and have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Uh, this was a pleasure.